because she had to be super Machiavellian and brutal and smart to make that happen, and that is exactly what orcas are. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress, the hate of men who will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Today we are interviewing Sam J. Miller about Blackfish City, his new novel. I'm Julia. I'm Daniel. And our special guest is Sam J. Miller. Welcome, Sam. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. So, I know Daniel and I are both super excited about this book. Daniel, do you want to lead off with an opener? I guess to start off with, for those that might not know much about the novel, Sam, could you sort of describe and briefly what it is about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Blackfish City is set in a post-climate change future where rising sea levels have transformed the globe and um, sort of rendered a lot of the world uninhabitable, but also... Um, triggered a lot of migration and war. Um, and it's set in one of many floating cities in the Arctic Circle, which has been opened up for resource uh, extraction. Uh, so there's a lot of industry since the polar ice caps are largely gone. Uh, and one day in this floating city, uh, a woman arrives with a killer whale and a polar bear on a mission that might be bloody revenge, um, but also might be more more than just that. Um, and so it follows four characters from different levels of the social strata, ranging from the obscenely rich to the obscenely poor, um, as they're sort of like pulled into her mission uh, and and find connections among them among themselves that they would never have imagined. And this uh, novel is set in the same universe as your short story Calved, uh, that was originally published in Asimov's, I believe. Yes. And subsequently republished in several best of collections. It was. And now, did everything start with that short story and then eventually branch out into the novel, or was it the reverse for you? I mean, for one thing, all of my stuff actually takes place in a shared universe. So there are lots of little references to um, other stories of mine, and and my my um, novel, The Art of Starving, is a is a, a sequel to a short story I wrote uh, at Clarion that was published in um, Shimmer magazine called Allosaurus Burgers. So I always try to sort of have uh, a universal worldview that the different pieces come together in, because um, I really like that when I find that in other authors' work, that kind of uh, intertextuality. Um, and so for me, with Blackfish City, uh, this woman just showed up in my head one day and she had a killer whale and she was not to be uh, trifled with. Um, and she had a really sharp weapon and she really demanded my my attention and I couldn't tell her no. Um, and originally she was a teenager um, and she was arriving in a, in a futuristic city uh, on a mission. And the more I thought about it and the more I developed it, I realized that um, this the way that she was triggering my sort of uh, long-standing obsessions and fascinations and, and um, 
rage triggers um, that I explore in fiction, um, it was a really natural fit that she actually was in this city that I had already sort of figured out in my mind um, in terms of how it worked and also as a, as a metaphor for uh, you know, the ways that immigrants um, are treated in America and how that's uh, uh, likely to play out in the um, almost certain future where Americans are refugees uh, in, other, <laughs> in, other, in other places. So, yeah, let's talk about some of the things that are definitely patterns of rage in Sam J. Miller's life and world. And the ways that they come across in your stories, because I feel like there's a common thread in a lot of your stories where you have characters that are very much presenting world views and lifestyles that you personally find reprehensible. And then you do this thing where you like take the thought experiment to its extreme and try to make them as sympathetic as possible while still being just awful. So I, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Like you you have as one of your point of view characters, this obscenely rich kid who is basically kind of a broy asshole. And yet you kind of made him a sympathetic character. And how did you even get there? What did what was your thought process there? So first of all, I've, you know, I'm very um, open about my thievery. And one of my favorite novels is called The Swimming Pool Library by Alan Hollinghurst, um, which is about this sort of, it's set in the uh, very early 80s. And it's about this indolent, super rich gay boy in London, um, who is um, learning that his grandfather rose to power and, and his own lavish lifestyle is thanks to this anti-gay uh, social uh, uh, panic that he orchestrated to purge uh, gay people from uh, civil service. Um, and so I really love that book. And I love that idea of the character who's sort of like coming to terms with how, how much of his privilege is bound up in oppression um, that happened in the past. Um, and I wanted to sort of like, you know, take it to its science fictional extreme and do that thing you can do in science fiction where you're like, all right, now I'm going to have there be um, horrific fireworks and monsters and, and um, killer whales. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of present this character who in many ways was sympathetic, in many ways mirrors some things about me. He's a gay man. He's um, somebody who is like, you know, kind of uh, shy and sensitive and cares deeply about art um, and kind of like is an esthete and, and loves to, to pr- consume art um, and doesn't really get how his behavior is problematic um, and does bad things without really getting it and and is on a journey towards getting to, towards figuring that out but maybe he won't get there um, so you know that's this you know there's pieces of me in all of my characters probably even the <laughs> horrifically reprehensible ones um, so so yeah there's a, there's a lot of me there's a lot of the swimming pool library um, probably a lot of other thievery going on there that I forgot about so let's talk about your viewpoint characters you have a few of them how did you choose these characters? Did they come to you? You said like that this idea, the whole book idea came from like the woman with the orca, which is awesome. Uh, but did all of them just come to you or did you deliberately set out to create this? How much of this was tied into the world building? Because it is such a fascinating and complex idea, this city in the future. 
Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think that um, I definitely wanted to, in exploring a lot of the things about cities and what makes them wonderful and what makes them terrible and a lot of the sort of obsessions I have from my day job as a community organizer, um, and also the things that I respond to really well in other books, um, is this sort of like the extent to which class determines your experience of a city. Um, and therefore, I really wanted to paint, uh, I wanted to have POV characters that were on the sort of scale from the very most wealthy to the very most poor, um, with some other folks who are in between to sort of sketch how, you know, in many ways, the, you know, the city is wonderful for rich people in ways that it is not for poor people, but the city is wonderful for poor people in ways that it is not for rich people. Um, and how, uh, you know, these these people's experience of the city are so different and so that you know for some people this city is utopia and for other people this city is dystopia a lot like you know new york city now where you got you know this this crazy war going on for our neighborhoods where you have people being displaced from the communities where their families live for generations while other people who are you know just arrived um, and are wealthier and, and privileged along axes of race and, and class, et cetera, are taking their apartments. Um, and so uh, it's, it's that, that's the sort of complexity that I wanted to get into because that to me is what, you know, determines um, a, great, a great story and a, great, and a story that feels true to life. Um, you know, I think I think of authors like William Gibson who can sort of like say like, here's how the future is going to be crazy, but it's going to be very different crazy future for a super rich person versus a, a really poor person who's sort of struggling to get by. Yeah. So I know that Daniel is interested in hearing more about your community organizing, and I want to let him ask a question about that um, in a minute here. But first, I wanted to just say like, I love that that's influencing your work. And I totally think of you as a superhero with all the work that you do with Picture the Homeless. So that is awesome. And I love to see how that like, how that comes through in this complex city in the future that does feel very much like New York, even though in this future, New York doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I don't mind pointing out that like, you know, the the housing campaign at Picture the Homeless, the thing that I've spent, you know, 14 years working on is around vacant property and landlords who keep buildings empty so as to keep the supply low and the demand high and the prices high for, for housing. Um, and it's this issue that we've been working on and trying to get people to give a shit about and nobody gives a shit about. Um, and so I'm really kind of surprised it took this long for me to write a story about uh, about that issue. Um, but yeah, that's this is this very much... Um, my New York City uh, frustrations projected into the future. And did those experiences also give you a bit of perspective into sort of the in- immigrant experience that I know went into both this and and CAVD itself? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that with CAVD, it was really sort of imagining this, um, you know, the fact that here in the United States, there's this profound irony where we, um, you know, there's this xenophobia and this idea that like, you know, uh, this anti-immigrant sentiment, um, where for the most part, people are coming to the United States because of bad shit the United States did, right? Like it's, you know, if folks are leaving, you know, countries like Mexico, where the United States through things like NAFTA, um, you know, destroyed the ability of local, of, of, of local economies to like produce decent paying jobs, or if people are fleeing places like the Dominican Republic, where the United States propped up a brutal dictator for decades, so who would like, you know, quash any attempt by the people 
to stop American corporations from stealing all their shit. Um, you know, we've done these things in the past that are so destructive and that have that have messed up you know, the, the, this hemisphere, but this world for so long. Um, and then people are trying to survive. So they come here and we give them more shit. Um, so I'm just sort of extrapolating that into the future and figuring that, you know, there will come a time when those same folks who talk a lot of shit, um, are going to have to choose between starving to death at home or going somewhere else to try to take care of themselves and their families. And, you know, what kind of, what kind of anti-immigrant sentiment are they going to have to deal with? Um, so, you know, the sort of ironies of it and the, the ways in which, um, you know, immigrant experience, the experience of poor people, homeless people, sex workers, etc., um, are sort of like pitted against each other and and used as ways that the privileged classes and people who who really are profiting off of 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 injustice um, can prevent us from doing anything about it by keeping us at each other's throats. And so. I actually wanted to get back to what Julia was just talking about in terms of the, the four different points of view and the structure of the novel. That's actually something I really loved about it is the first half of the novel, you're really beginning to to get to know. And because you start to get to know these characters, you also begin to fall in love with them and become invested in them, despite some of them having bad qualities, none of them really end up seeing seeming like villains. And it seems that you really your writing really excels at doing this, uh, humanizing characters and making them very relatable. And it seemed that with the four different points of view, it also gave you a chance to sort of have a versatility in the types of stories or the types of point of views that you were um, that you were playing with. Um, for not just from like the different classes, but also in terms of like, there's, there's certain sections because of the city without a map segments that you have between the point of view characters, there's parts where you're writing in the second person with the character of Soak, or forgive me if I mispronounce some of the characters' names, but with Soak, they are, they are gender fluid. And so you also get this ability to write about different uh, write different characters through the lens of different gender identities as well. And was that, was it not just class? Was it all these other things that really made you enjoy writing Blackfish City or go in those directions as well? I think so. I think one of the things that I look to storytelling for, both as a reader and as a writer, is for, um, you know, getting at the, the kind of true complexity of human beings so that um, you know, villains are really scary. And when we see villains, when we see people who are behaving in abominable, horrific ways, uh, it can be so infuriating. Um, you know, when those people are our president, right? It can be so infuriating. Um, and so we, we sort of like are conditioned to see narratives, um, uh, in terms of the, the, the villainy of people. And, um, I have no interest in seeing the president as a, complex person um but that but that <laughs> there are you know, <laughs> right right but rather than think about like oh my god this this country is full of like horrific terrible people who put this monster in office and are ve like at really excited about all the fucked up shit he's doing um you know it's helpful to me to remember that people are people and people are complicated and you can be really awesome in some ways and really terrible in others and so that you know as much as i like to you know as much as much as i want to like you know give lots of love to my you know 
gay brothers, like there's a lot of gay guys who have a lot of privilege in other ways. And even though they've dealt with oppression, um, you know, are oppressing others in turn. So, um, you know, it, it's helpful to me to, to bear that in mind and to see that and to get at the, the, the ways that, you know, we are all just people and we, we try to do good things and we do bad things, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, or sometimes out of selfishness or things we can't control. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what, what I, what I wanted to explore with this as with other stuff. And, um, you know, the, the different characters who are coming from different backgrounds, who have different experiences, um, you know, I, those are just more, more opportunities to explore complexity for me. So I know that this coming from the, the standpoint of like wanting to see people as people and making them complex and really digging into different motivations is a really cool thing. But there's also a strong thread of community building throughout this. And um, I, I know Daniel wanted to talk a little bit about AIDS because I, I think it's really natural that the first place that one might go when one hears about the breaks is to the AIDS epidemic. But then the breaks seem very different from AIDS. But Daniel was pointing out earlier in a conversation with me uh, that it there's a lot of kind of community coming together around that. And um, I don't know if Daniel wants to get into more of that and, and kind of ask the question, but I wanted to dive into just like the ways in which not only are people complex, but we're seeing different communities build and different people have different realizations about each other and about the world because of their interactions. The one thing that I found really fascinating with the breaks, and I don't want us to spoil things too much. And I appreciate that. There's definitely a sense, even aside from from the breaks, of connecting, people connecting together and having this sort of individuals are tr trying to do what they think is right for the betterment of not always just themselves, but for some kind of community. And you get empathy between characters, and it seems to be a common thread. And in the really trying to avoid spoilers, but in the in the context of the breaks, that bringing people together reminded me of um, with, if you just make a rough connection between the breaks and HIV and AIDS epidemics, that as horrible as it was, one of the things it did do is really brought a community together. And in many spots around the United States, at least as I have, I have understood it, I'm, I'm fairly young, but I was in Houston for a number of years as a postdoc, and the very first nationwide dental clinic for homeless youth was born from uh, experiences of people that suffered from HIV in their communities, and they began to come together and work together to build social structures and build support networks. And even with the awfulness of it, that had the the effect of actually good coming out in terms of that community building. And that's one thing that I found really interesting with the breaks, where it, it wasn't just something horrible. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that, you know, I I am approximately 600 years old. <laughs> um, and I, I definitely came of age as a gay man in a period where it was very much like, if you have gay sex, you will get AIDS and die. Um, and I did have like, 
you know, my best friend who passed away from from HIV AIDS. Um, and I, you know, I, I definitely sort of like see it as separately from the, you know, horrific actual physical consequences of the disease. There's two things that that HIV AIDS did. Um, it exposed how, a, like, it took all the hate that had been sort of like implicit and invisible in American society and and, and patriarchy in general, um, and made it visible. And you had, you know, suddenly all these sort of like politicians and and religious figures who had been sort of like keeping, you know, they didn't need to talk about how homophobic they were. It was all just really implied. Um, could be, were, were saying things that like people needed to be branded or tattooed on their foreheads if they were HIV positive or that it was, uh, it was God's, God's vengeance on um, sinners. Um, and so it exposed how the system works. It exposed who this country cares about and who it doesn't. Um, and I talk about things in terms of America because that's where I am and, and, and where I sort of like think of things, but it's, this is much, obviously much bigger, um, than America. Um, and so, and it, and it talked about, it exposed who people cared about and who people didn't and the fact that people of color and, um, uh, LGBTQIA folks and, and drug users and others were sort of the community's most hit. Uh, hit the hardest is like exactly why it was it wasn't until 1985 that Reagan would even use the word AIDS. Um, so you know it exposed all that, but it did something else too, which is it exposed our power. And when our backs were up against the wall, people fought back in really amazing ways. And so you know people disrupted Catholic Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral when 5,000 people were attending. Right? I mean this hugely ballsy, <laughs> incredibly like provocative civil disobedience, right? Bringing Grand Central Terminal to a halt at rush hour, like human beings blocking, like chaining themselves across the gates and releasing all these helium balloons um, to to sort of like highlight the fact that um, people were just going about their daily lives while people died, right? So many amazing um, examples of direct action and community organizing that came out of things like ACT UP. Um so yeah, I mean, really, like you mentioned, there are concrete things like clinics and um, organizations that are still active today that are that were kickstarted by that, as well as sort of like, you know, kicking the fight for queer representation and visibility into high gear so that, you know, setting the stage for the sort of um, transformations that have happened in the last, um, you know, decade or two, um, you know, all of which is not nearly enough um but that but that still sort of is a is a very different world we're in for for queer folks um than where we were in 1981 uh so yeah um the, with the breaks i wanted to tell those two stories um of like you know uh we are dealing with oppression but that oppression can make us strong right if i can get a little controversial here um, this is why I think Killmonger was able to defeat T'Challa in ritual combat in Black Panther, um, because as awesome as T'Challa is, he um, was born and raised in a uh, safe space that celebrated him and his power and his strength, um, and Killmonger was not. Killmonger was um, raised in a place where he was watching people die all around him for the color of their skin, and he uh, dealt with so much oppression and it made him very strong, but it also made him very, uh, you know, as, as Okoye says, your, your heart is so full of hate. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's my, uh, that's my, my controversial analysis here <laughs> um, about, 
about Black Panther. Okay, so anybody who did not understand that, just go watch Black Panther. We're (laughs) sorry for the spoilers for Black Panther, but it's totally (laughs) worth watching anyway. Yeah, that's when the movie gets good. I'm just telling you. I mean, no, that actually, no. no, The the movie movie gets gets good from like the opening (laughs) frame. It's amazing. Indeed. Indeed. I've seen it. I've seen it four times and uh, it's it's perfection. Uh, The ways that sometimes anger and pain can make us stronger, which is definitely, it's true. There is, there is power in anger. Um, so yeah, the breaks is really interesting. And I know that you've written about AIDS before. I know that at Strange Horizons, back when I was editing there, we published a story of yours called Kenneth, a user's manual, which is actually very directly about AIDS and not about something else that has similarities to it. And so I thought that was interesting. And when, when I first started reading this book and was introduced to the concept of the breaks. I was like, oh, this is like, this is an AIDS thing. And then as it went on, it was like, wow, this is really not what I expected. But I thought it was very interesting to see how the how the things shaped up and how they were different. And I don't really want to talk about that because <laughs> it spoils it, everything. It. <laughs> but if you're interested in reading this book, just like prepare to be like, whoa, this is different. Yeah, maybe we could do like a like a spoiler a spoiler bonus uh, uh, conversation where I can talk to you about why you know what the differences are and why it is what it is because um, I like to think I had a good reason for the you know differences yeah. between between the breaks and, and, and HIV AIDS. Well, I think it's um, it's a really interesting difference, and the other the other piece of the community building that I kind of wanted to dig into was the whole concept of the city without a map which we get some excerpts of and it's sort of so the, the one of the main characters the sort of rich gay boy character is obsessed with this recording the city without a map that tells you it's like a user's guide to this future city but it's kind of it's in a very specific style and it's really almost like poetry in a way and i feel like that in itself is a really interesting piece of community building. And then the way that it kind of like gets integrated into the story and eventually like becomes clear what it is and why it's there is fascinating. And I'm wondering what you feel like you can talk about, about that without spoiling things. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that um, for one thing, you know, I have a, you know, the sort of, I think um, not uncommon, complicated science fiction writer relationship with the concept of the info dump. Um, And like Ken Liu has written um, or talked about the ways in which uh, info dumps are actually not a problem and they get a bad rap and everyone says don't info dump. Um, But what they mean is don't be stupid about how you (laughs) reveal information about your world. But that often, um, you know, the bits of a of a science fiction text that provide context and background and just straight up like tell you what's going on in the world um, are the most can often be the most exciting or or rewarding, right? So there's a scene at the beginning of Neuromancer where it's like a children's video is playing on the television and sort of explaining for children uh, what cyberspace is, um, and that's it's it's really well done. Um, so I do like the idea of using finding a way to p- convey um, information that wouldn't. <laughs> would never be organically discussed, right? These characters are not going to be like, well, we can talk about the complexity of the music scene here. Um, I mean, they could if they're music critics. Um, 
But uh, I, I did want a device and a voice that would sort of enable um, this weird, uh, wild, messy future city to explain itself to us. Um, and for this sort of uh, chorus of voices, whether they're, you know, from different countries and speaking different languages, representing different genders um, and nationalities uh, to uh, sort of tell their truth and, and what, the, what, what, are the, what are the facts of the city um, even if those facts are in contradiction to each other or they are different from someone else's facts of the city. Um, so, you know, I, I, wanted, I wanted there to be a point to them. I wanted them to serve a narrative function. Um, but I also just wanted um, to, to be able to have, a, have an immersive experience into and an opportunity to discuss the, the, the identity of this city. And that's what was great about it is when I first saw it, I thought, oh, well, this is Infodump. And I thought, well, it can't just he's not going to just make it that and that's what made it so satisfying was that at the end it's it's much more than just an info dump you turned it into something else thank you so daniel i know you wanted to talk about samuel delaney do you want to ask a samuel delaney related question at this time please please do the question i guess is there seem to be many influences in your novel whether intentional or not i Got vibes from Philip Pullman to Paolo Basaglupi, uh, and there's a quote at the beginning of the novel from Dahlgren, and then the novel ends in a very Dahlgren-like call-out, at least when I read it, that it made me think of that. And so I was curious what types of influences were there um, that kind of went into, into your novel. Yeah, I mean, I am obsessed with Dahlgren. I love Samuel Delaney's work in general, um, and that for me is is his greatest work, and 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 a uniquely magnificent sort of like piece of science fiction, um, almost representing a sort of other path, uh, another sort of weird branch off of the science fiction tree that is not the it's not descended from the golden age, or at least it has some DNA in common with the golden age of science fiction, but that it's as much a product of like. I don't know, William Burroughs and Virginia Woolf as it is Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. Um, and so it has this incredible poeticness. It has this weird cyclicalness of like, you know, it's a loop. It's uh, got all this poetic stuff going on. Um, and so, and it's also about a really gnarly city where the rules of the world as we know them do not apply or they apply differently. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm obsessed with that book. I also think that, you know, it, it has a lot of DNA in common with some more conventional American, um, uh, literary ancestors, including things like William Faulkner. Um, and there's a lot of, as I lay dying in Blackfish City, um, as I lay dying is like my favorite Faulkner book. And the thing that makes it good, the thing that is the difference. So, you know, Samuel Delaney is one of my favorite writers, and I am obsessed with Dahlgren, and it was definitely a big model for Blackfish City um, on a lot of levels, including the fact that as much as this is one of the great pieces of the science fiction canon, it's also a very strange beast in that canon, and it it isn't so much it's, – it's like a – a weird it's it's not a branch off of the golden age tree it's like a weird sentient fungus climbing its branch, its trunk right so it it's very it has a lot in common with things like theodore sturgeon but it also you know has a lot in common with 
uh, Virginia Woolf and uh, with James Joyce and with William S. Burroughs um, and this sort of like raw, edgy, sexy, dirty, messy stream of consciousness, not obsessively plot concerned. Um, it does have a plot, but it's not going to give you the kind of easy answers. Um, you know, the title of the book might answer one of the book's most haunting questions, but again, then again, it might not. Um, so, you know, it's just this, it's this fascinating model and it's, it's beautiful and it's poetic and it's full of kinky sex um, and, and cool tech. Um, so, you know, this, you know, Blackfish City has a lot um a lot of messy DNA from all over the map. You know, you mentioned Philip Pullman and there's a lot of that. Um, and, you know, there's also a lot of As I Lay Dying. Um, and, you know, the thing I love about As I Lay Dying is it's all about this woman, uh, Addie, and it's her family going to bury her. Um, and so the whole book is this caravan of the family taking this co- her coffin back to the town where her people are from so she can be buried with her family. Um, and they're all, all the characters, her her husband, her sons, her daughters, their uh, uh, companions are are all talking about her, and she's you know dead. Um, but then at the exact center of the book, she gets one chapter that she narrates, and it's the perfect chapter, and it's exa- it's what makes the difference between this book being like horrible and magnificent. The fact that she gets to like speak and and tell her truth and sort of like um, undercut a lot of the other truths that are being told um, and the sort of like dominant narrative by things by mostly her husband but also her children um, and so I kind of I kind of love that and so I love the idea of structuring a narrative around a character who is mostly silent but does speak does get one chapter of first person narration um, as the Orchomancer does. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I kind of wanted to do that, but with a lot more murder and bloodshed and, uh, uh, love. You've mentioned in, in there, of course, uh, the Orchomancer, the, the woman that you initially had the vision of that, that birthed much of this. And, um, that was really cool. Just having that brief glimpse into, uh, her point of view within the novel. But one of the things that I adore about her and about, Blackfish City is this idea of the tech that you do include within it. And the tech varies from sort of like AI programs that are guiding and sort of forming the the system of how the city works, but then also the tech, of course, of the nanobonding, of humans bonding with animals. And was that a part of the initial vision that you had, or is that something that just gradually developed? Uh, I I had been reading a lot about the idea of, um, you know, nanites and the idea that you could have, you know, essentially a wireless connection between distant nanites that would enable for communication. Um, and, you know, there is some speculation that they could be used to uh, create some kind of emotional link between organisms. Um, you know how sophisticated that would be um, is. I mean, it's it's all theoretical, so it could be that could be doesn't that maybe that doesn't work at all. But um, I did like the idea of imagining tech that would um, essentially, you know, might have been con- conceived for one purpose, but sort of escape into the wild and evolve and change depending on who used it, and um, and therefore become something very different. And so it's it's sort of like this weird sort of semi-military, semi-pharmaceutical experimentation that that went wrong or got loose. Um, so yeah, I think that 
you know, I definitely, the idea that the uh, bond between humans and animals would be uh, technological rather than magical, as in something like the Golden Compass, um, was definitely there from the beginning. Although, to be really real with everybody, I am not the hardest sci-fi, I'm not the hardest hard sci-fi dude. Um, So I have total respect for people who find the, this sci-fi exceedingly soft um i'm sure there's a you know the, the, there's a probably a corollary to the arthur c clark quote about any sufficiently developed technology being indistinguishable from magic of like any sufficiently soft sci-fi being indistinguishable from fantasy um so that you know if somebody felt that way about the tech here i i don't have much uh ground to stand on to argue with them about it i mean i'm also like exceedingly bad at genre and and understanding where something is in the genre uh map and especially my own stuff of like you know the art of starving i thought of as a science fiction novel but was published as contemporary um and so you know i i have long ago made peace with the fact that I'm going to write some shit and people are going to think it's one thing and it might be different than what i think it is but i i don't care as long as they're reading it the Art of Starving you thought of as a science fiction novel and not like a fantasy novel? Correct. Which, again, right. I mean, like, I yeah. Like, people have argued this with me, and I think that's totally... I'm, I'm not arguing. <laughs> I'm just sort of, like, interested in how that works. I feel like that we need to have a whole other conversation. But Yeah. Totally. Invite me back. <laughs> invite me back next week. It'll be great. I thought the Nanites was a, a really interesting way of doing it, and I... I don't know. I guess I'm not the hardest sci-fi person either, although I've read plenty of sci-fi in my time. But I feel like this is very in keeping with other things. Like you mentioned William Gibson. I've also kind of thought about Neil Stevenson and the sort of feel of how this sci-fi world comes together, not in the book as a whole, because I feel like they are doing different things with their worlds, but sort of in the kind of science fictional feel of the world there's definitely a lot of snow crash in this book i will not i will not again i will not cover my thievery um i really love you know there's definitely some neil stevenson in here yeah well it's kind of the mix of uh this sort of cyberpunk future with also anthropology in a way i guess totally anyway i think this book is amazing it's really fun fun may be the wrong word it's really compelling (laughs) It has so many characters that I was profoundly interested in, even when I wasn't loving them. And then I sort of ended up falling in love with all of them anyway, which made me question all of my personal values at times. Oh, that's what I'm here for. Make you question all your personal values. Score. Let me write that down. What what did you do today, Sam? I made people question all their personal values. (laughs) I can't actually tell if we can really say any more about this book without getting into severe spoiler territory. Um, Daniel did mention that you have a gender fluid character. I loved that one of the main viewpoint characters was non-binary because we don't see that many non-binary main characters in books and Sook is awesome. So that was really exciting to me. Thank you. I wanted to, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I firmly believe that in so many ways our thinking about gender um, and identity is changing and will continue to change. And in many ways, a lot of the, like, I want to imagine a future where the fucked up binary is gone or different um and and where we we can we can embrace things other than you know what we what we are comfortable with now 
Um, but I also didn't want to presume that it, that, that problematic gender thinking would go away. Um, you know, there's a couple characters, mostly American who have, uh, who, uh, <laughs> still don't, still don't quite get what, what they're dealing with, um, and, and resent it, um, or, or are aggressively, uh, failing to get it. Um, so I want to imagine a better future, but not a perfect one. Cause I feel like that's, uh, difficult more difficult for me to imagine yeah i mean i feel like no matter what we're always going to have oppression and social pressures that make people think in different ways that are narrow in along different axes i mean that's just kind of human nature i think uh but i love that you made this character a main character that you kind of confronted that because that's like, there are a lot of us in the real world. I know like even on this Kathy and Fanti show in our staff, we have me and Alex who are both non-binary people. So it's very exciting to actually see something that is representative of part of my identity in books that I don't usually get to see. Awesome. Thank you for saying so. Daniel, do you have any other questions that you can think of that will not spoil this amazing book? I don't think it will spoil it, but as a microbiologist, I I definitely have to to ask uh, regarding the breaks. We never really find out completely what it is, um, and there just seems to be so much cool potential with it for potential returns to this universe. So I guess the question is: Do you plan on returning to this to this universe in the future uh, with other stories? So I actually, I don't, I mean, like I said, all my stuff takes place in this shared universe. So there is, um, you know, definitely pieces of what's at play in this book are going to be at play in other things. But I, I actually have given some thought to the breaks and how it developed. Um, and, you know, in my short story, When Your Child Strays from God, which was um, published by Clark's World and was a Nebula nominee a couple years ago, um, there's a drug called spider webbing. Um, which is sort of a, a futuristic drug that enables its users, people who take hits from the same drug, to enter a shared hallucination. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually, I've actually begun the thought process for how spider webbing um, is a factor in creating the breaks um, and how it metabolizes in the body and, and will start to lead to when, com- when combined with other things, including the sort of pharmaceutical testing. Um, you know, because in this horrific future I've imagined where the FDA is losing its power to protect people from corporations um, that I totally wrote before our current president started doing that, um, you know, I'm, I'm imagining a, a lot more um, unregulated drug uh, drug testing. So, so yeah, spider webbing plus FDA budget crunch um, equals, you know, plus a whole bunch of other variables uh, is going gonna, is gonna to lead to the breaks. So that is something I'm exploring i'm going to explore in a, in something i don't know if it'll be a short story or or what yeah the, when your child strays from god is definitely one of the other things i was thinking about where you you take a character that we might feel rage towards and then make her sympathetic in a weird way because you have that you have that mother and like i don't know it's another it's another one of those things where i'm like i'm feeling I'm feeling sympathetic towards this person who has values that very deeply clash with my own. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's real. I mean, I feel like I like some of the, you know, moms of my friends growing up are these like, you know, these incredibly sweet, wonderful, kind, 
decent people and, and good moms who are full of hateful, horrible thoughts that they act out without meaning to in ways that Im- impact their their children and their lives of the people around them. So, um, you know, that's that's true of so many people. And, and probably, I, you know, I'm sure there's a level in which is true of all of us that we, um, you know, embody problematic thing, thinking and, and behavior that is shaped by history and um, whatever else. And, and, you know, we we do our best to curb that and to identify it and to change our behavior as we as we see it. Um, but it's probably a... Um, a mistake to think that um, anybody's anybody's perfect. Oh well, certainly, yeah, I'm I'm definitely not. Um, I feel like you saying the that there's some of you in all of your characters, even the quote reprehensible ones, and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, all of us have our dark, dark sides. That is that is a thing. <laughs> no one is perfect. Uh, so let's end this on a lighter note, though. I love it. I love a lighter note. If you could bond with an animal. <laughs> Which animal would you choose and why? So there's obviously killer whales are pretty, pretty freaking amazing. Um, and I would probably answer killer whale. And probably that's why I wrote this book is like, I want to imagine being bonded to a, an orca. Um, and I, and also, um, I will tell you that there was a chapter of this book that was narrated by the orca. Um, and my editor asked me to, you know, suggested removing it because at that point, there were a lot of narrators. Um, and so I did, and I thought it was the right decision, but I do really want to put that out, put that chapter out there somewhere. Uh, but, um, but yeah, the orcas are amazing. I feel like, you know, in the world of the story, um, the people nanobond not to, not based on like, what is a cool animal, but based on what is this, what is the culture? What does the community need? Um, and, you know, maybe we need somebody who's like taking care of the chickens. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry, Tom, you got to bond with the chickens. Except the woman who really wanted the orca. <laughs> That's true, but she was, but, but clearly she was bad, clearly she was badass enough, like, that was the right animal for her, because she had to be super Machiavellian and, 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 um, right. <laughs> brutal and smart to be, to, to make that happen, and that is exactly what orcas are. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it. Did the wand choose her, or did she? Did she choose the wand? <laughs> so yeah, I feel like while I'd love to be a badass orca, I would probably be a goat or a sheep or some dumb shit like that. Where uh, I mean, I, I that's my that's my uh, lunar zodiac sign, and I feel like I do have a sheep affinity because sheep are awesome and they get a bum rap. But um, I'd be cool being a sheep. What about you? What 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 would y'all be? What would I be? Um, that's a great question. I feel like. Uh, I have a great affinity for cats, so I probably I, I could see a cat being a like thing. Like a house cat or like big ass? Really any kind of cat. I, I, I mean <laughs> I love big cats, but like I do have an affinity for house cats too. I, I just I I get along with cats well. We understand each other. Daniel, what about you? I would definitely go with penguin. Nice. I've Ooh. had affinity with penguins since I was in middle school. My wife and I had a penguin themed wedding. Uh, wow. We made white chocolate igloos, and everybody did a penguin dance rather than the chicken dance. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, we had penguin trivia. So yeah, penguin, <laughs> but also it would be really cool to be um, nano-bonded to bacteria and be able to control them as well. That would make my research a lot easier to do. That's uh, very practical thinking. Bacteria, that's <laughs> that's like, they're everywhere. That's so... Yeah. Oh, wow. I feel like my my badass one that I would probably like enjoy but wouldn't actually be is a bear because i bears love bears are and awesome. awesome and badass um but but probably instead i'd get a house cat 
<laughs> that's that's probably what would happen. Yeah, I mean, it occurs. <laughs> I just realized that while we're while we're getting crazy, like because nanobonding isn't real, I should just fucking say that I've been <laughs> Allosaurus because Allosauruses are amazing. <laughs> right there, you go. I mean, why yeah. not? It's not off the exactly. table. Exactly, <laughs> it's, it's as on the table as any other kind of nanobonding at this at this point in our technological <laughs> development. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, this has been super fun and enlightening and wonderful, as conversations with Sam always are. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And everybody should absolutely go out and buy and read Blackfish City and The Art of Starving, because The Art of Starving is amazing. And Sam, do you have anything else coming up, or is there anywhere else that people can find you or anything like that that you want people to know about? I mean, I'll be at the Nebulas um, in Pittsburgh, and I'm actually going to. This will this will come out after okay, that. Okay, I won't be at the Nebulas. Um... <laughs> I mean, he will, but it will be over. Hopefully, by that point, he'll have like an Andre Norton award. Well, let's let's hope that that's the case. All right, cool. And uh, we can find you online, and we can find your books wherever fine books are sold. I found Blackfish City face up on a table at a bookstore the other day, and it made me very happy. It's awesome, and it wasn't in New York City, so it wasn't me. No, no. It was uh, an independent bookstore in Rhode Island. It had a place of prominence at Barnes & Noble and Buffalo as well. Well, thanks, y'all. This has been great. Thank you very much for the opportunity to get to talk to you. So thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Awkward ending. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.